The following audio is from Summit Church. For more information on Summit Church, visit www.summitonline.tv. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today online. I love, love that you are still engaging with our church. Wherever you're at, we want you to feel like you're a part of our community. So let us know. Let us know what we can do for you. We want to shepherd and pastor and be there for you in your times of need. So if there's anything that we can do, please let us know. If you were with us last week, we went through a passage in Luke that is one of the more profound miracles that Jesus ever performed, and it was the feeding of the 5,000. As as you may have heard, it's really more like 15,000 people from one small boy's lunch. We, We come off of that to what I'm calling a midterm exam. Jesus is going to ask one question in our passage today. We've only got three verses, so it's a short passage, but Jesus is going to ask one question kind of in the middle of his ministry. And and I remember the only time in college that I had a one question and it was a final exam. It was the hardest exam I ever took. And and I went to Bible college. So for, for me, that one question was, I was supposed to write out word for word on a piece of paper, the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So three chapters of scripture from memory, write it out. And then the craziest part about that was you got to grade your own final exam. So, I mean, you could have cheated like crazy. But you're in Bible college, so you know you're not supposed to. And that was the hardest exam I ever took, a one-question exam. It's, it's, it is so important that you get this question right. And Jesus, a little actually past his halfway point, we're actually getting closer to the end of his second year of ministry out of three. He asks this incredible question. He asks, who do you think I am? You've been with me now for a long time. Who do you think I am? And this passage, it serves as a hinge in the Gospels, okay? Every one of them, there's this tipping point where Jesus goes from demonstrating his power. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. He walks on water. He feeds 5,000. There's this hinge right here in the middle that goes from showing Jesus' power to showing his sacrifice, making sure that his disciples first and then all of those who choose to follow him, making sure that they realize, hey, what you may think we're heading towards, we're not. We're heading towards a cross. We're heading towards a sacrifice. If you're thinking this is going to end really, really, really well for you here on this earth, you're really, 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 really off. So it's a midterm question. There's only one of them And here we find it in Luke chapter 9, verses 18 and 19. One time, when Jesus was praying in private, I love that, he had finally pulled himself away from the crowds. And what did he do? He didn't eat or sleep. He prayed. That's how he recharged. When he was praying in private and his disciples were with him, we're not sure if they were praying with him or they just happened to be waiting for him to get done praying, but his disciples were with him. He asked them this question. Who do the crowds say I am? So so that was the first question. Okay, that's not the midterm though. He's just wanting to know, hey, what's the buzz? What's the buzz? Who, Who are people saying that I am? They replied, verse 19. Some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're probably Elijah. Come back. 
And still others, maybe one of the prophets from long ago, has come back to life. That, that's the general population's view and thought on who you are. And if you're hearing that and going, wait, wait I, I've heard that before. Yeah, just two weeks ago, just two weeks ago, uh, in, uh, in the sermon, I gave you the Luke nugget talking about Herod when he asked his advisors, who, who is this Jesus? And I'll read it again if, if you weren't worth this two weeks ago, but it's Luke 9, 7 through 8. So just a few verses back, here's what it says. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. So we see that the disciples are accurately relaying public opinion. If that had gotten to Herod's advisors, that was what the community was saying. And so they got that question right. But that's not the correct answer. So Jesus is not concerned about popular opinion. He's not concerned about what Galilee thinks he is. He wants to know what his disciples think. So Luke chapter 9, verse 20, and this actually ends our passage for the day, but we're, we're going to go for a little bit longer. Luke chapter 9, verse 20, he says, but what about you? What about you? Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? One question, calling it a midterm, because they're almost two years into his ministry. At this point, he's wondering, what does his disciples think? What, what do they think? What do they think about him? And of course, of course, it's Peter, the bold one, the faithful one. Peter answers, you are God's Messiah. You are the promised one the anointed one. You are Lord. Peter nails it. A plus. That is exactly who Jesus is. Peter got it right. The problem is, the problem is, he didn't understand what he was saying. He got it right, completely accurate, but he couldn't show his work. So everyone listening is like, oh, that is a huge declaration. Jesus is the Messiah, the one who has been waited for for thousands of years. That's you, Jesus. I know it. But his answer was lacking. Think of it like this. Have you ever accidentally gotten the correct answer? I remember a couple years ago, and this is, a, this is a silly illustration, but I remember we were, we were watching a football game, and uh, it was when Kyler Murray was still playing for OU, and, and someone said, hey, if, if he's the Heisman Trophy winner and he decides to come back, do you think he could win it again? And someone said something else, and it's like, has anyone ever won the Heisman Trophy twice? How, how great would that be? And, and I just blurted out, yeah, Archie Griffith. He, he won it twice. Well, that's not true. It's Archie Griffin won it twice. And I don't know where that came from. It was like somewhere way back in the back. And they're like, who, what? Yeah, I, that sounds familiar. And, and I was like, I'm pretty sure he's the only one. And then, of course, we all have our phones so you can Google it. And, and it, it turns out it was Archie Griffin. It, I got the name wrong, but they gave me credit for it. That was a complete guess from somewhere way in the back. And that's kind of what Peter's doing here. I think, I think I know this. 
I think you are the Messiah. And for that, Peter will be praised. He will receive praise, but we'll see here in a few moments, he will also be rebuked. Because while his words were correct, while his answer technically was the correct one, he had no idea what he was saying. And Jesus will show us this. So first, first, let's listen to the praise. Matthew records the praise. Matthew 16, 16 through 18. This is the praise. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You're Christ, you're the Messiah, okay, same word. You're the son of the living God. That's in addition to what Luke records, even more so showing and understanding. You are the Christ, you are the son of the living God, you are the Messiah. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Blessed are you, because for this reason, this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven, for he's the one who reveals. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, Peter, Petros, means rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And so some have speculated that Jesus was literally going to build his church on Peter. Really, what I think that means is Jesus is going to build his church on the profession of faith of all those who come to know him as Lord and as the Son of God. So upon his confession, that's the first one, I'm going to just continue to build my church of those who confess and believe that I am Lord, that I am the Son of God. Amazing, amazing praise. Peter's answer was based on his immense faith in Jesus' power to fulfill, even though what he thought Jesus was going to fulfill was misguided. Okay, And, and we'll see why it was misguided. Jesus knows that Peter's faith is unparalleled. He knows that Peter will guide the early church, but he also knows, he also knows that he must correct Peter's view. He heard the correct answer, but he knew in his heart that Peter got it right out of luck, not out of true understanding. So now he has to course correct. And the reason he has to is because I want us to look at Peter's thinking. Here's what Peter was saying when he confessed that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, I am going to read a passage of Scripture from the Psalms of Solomon, okay? That is not in your Bible. That's not one of the 66 books. I'm going to read a passage that's apocryphal. It's written afterwards. It was probably written about 100 B.C., so about 100 years before Jesus was born. It was written by Pharisees or Essenes. Either one are religious groups that wrote an 18-chapter book called the Psalms of Solomon. And in the 17th chapter, we read a passage that really defines what every Jewish person was expecting the Messiah to be. Now, before you go, well, why are we even reading this? I want you to know that if you read Psalm 72, you're going to see a lot of this same language. Okay, but this is 
the understanding. When Peter says, you're the Messiah, here's what he's thinking. And this is why Jesus has to course correct. Psalms of Solomon, not in your Bible, 17, 21 through 25. Once again, not in your Bible, but gives us a picture of what he's thinking. Lord, raise up for them their king. Okay, they want a king on this earth. The son of David, Jesus was, to rule over your servant Israel, the children of God. In the time known to you, O God, undergird this king, him, with the strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, the occupiers. At this point in time, when Peter made that statement, Rome occupying the entire region. Destroy the unrighteous rulers to purge Jerusalem from the Gentiles, the pagans. You've got to get them out of there. Jerusalem is your rightful throne. That's where you're going to set up and rule from in wisdom and righteousness. Drive out the sinners from the inheritance. Shatter all their substance with an iron rod, a conquering king. Come in and destroy them. Show your power. Show your might. And destroy the unlawful nations with the word of your mouth. It's the power that you possess. The disciples had an incorrect view of the Messiah. And it warrants the first of many, the first, this is the first one, of many teachings that Jesus will give. He'll give four in total about his death. Hey, I'm not going to be king. I'm not going to set up a throne here. I have a different purpose. And and here's what he says, Mark chapter 8, verse 31. He then began to teach them, his disciples. Peter's on this high, like, oh, I just, I I nailed the midterm. This is great. He began to teach them, the Son of Man must suffer many things. He's going to be rejected by the elders, okay, the religious leaders, the chief priests, even above the elders, the teachers of the law, those who explain the Torah or the Old Testament to the people. He's going to be rejected by all of them. They're going to say, you are a fraud. You're not the Messiah. He's going to be rejected by them. And then he said that he must be killed so that after three days, he can rise again. Once again, this is the first of four times that Jesus will say that. Jesus has to begin to reorder the disciples' thoughts on his role as the Messiah. Because one They expect an earthly kingdom with a human army. That's what they're expecting. But what Jesus knows they're going to get is a spiritual kingdom with a heavenly army. Completely different than what they're thinking. Number two, they expect liberation from Rome through a conquering king that comes in and just by his word destroys all the evil nations and all the oppressors. I mean, it's a beautiful thought, and we can see why they would be so excited. If This is you, Jesus. Let's go. We're going to be generals in this army, and everyone's going to love us. I am in it, Jesus. I'm with you. But instead of liberation of Rome through a conquering king, they will get liberation from sin through a risen Lord. Now, 2,000 years after the cross, we can look back at that and go, that's a much better deal. I'll take that. I'll take liberation from sin over liberation from Rome any day. But for them, they they had a very specific view 
They had a very specific understanding of what the Messiah would be and what he would do. So Peter's hearing this teaching probably for the very first time, or at least it's sinking in for the very first time, but he's on a high right now. He's the one who stood up and made that confession of faith. He's the one who got it right. And so he understands, he understands that what Jesus is saying cannot be true. No, 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 Jesus, no. And the same power and faith that propelled him to an answer that was correct and praised will then send him straight to the doghouse. Mark chapter 8, verse 32. Jesus spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So Peter has the audacity to grab Jesus in the middle of his teaching on how he is going to be a suffering servant. Peter grabs him and pulls him aside and goes, no, Lord, no, that's not how it's going to be. Matthew 16, 22 says, never, Lord, never, Lord, will that happen. This shall not happen to you. Literally, that term there, never, Lord, means God forbid. Okay, let that sink in. Let, picture all this, right? Peter makes this confession. Jesus says, you are going to be the one I build my church on. That confession is the first one. There's going to be so many more. And then Jesus goes, but I need to course correct a little bit. Here's how it's really going to look. And Peter stops him in the middle and pulls him aside. And I want you to hear this. I want you to be there. I want you to feel this. He literally looks at Jesus and he says, God forbid that to happen. God forbid you to lay your life down. And then Jesus loses it. He just says, God forbid, and he goes, no, God has called me to this. God has called me to this, and nothing, nothing will stand in my way from seeing this come to fruition. So Jesus unloads Mark 8, 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, so he's been pulled aside by Peter, and then he turns back around to the other 11, and he says this. He rebuked Peter. He said, you get behind me. He has turned his back on Peter. He says, you get behind me, Satan. The term Satan means adversary. You are an adversary to my mission. You get behind me now, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but instead the things of men. And that is absolutely true. What Peter expected is what man expected, is what most Jews expected. He wasn't doing this out of evil. He was doing it out of love. He's like, Jesus, you can't die. You've got to sit on a throne. You've got to be king. You are king. I just declared you're king. He would have never in a million years thought Jesus would look at him and say, you are standing in my way. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus does not tell Peter to go away. He doesn't cast him out. See, we can make the biggest mistakes in the world and God doesn't throw us away. It's not what he does. It's not how he loves Peter just messed up royally, and Jesus simply told him, nothing, nothing will stand in the way of me completing my mission. My mission is so clear. It's to lay my life down 
as a ransom for many. And Peter, my favorite disciple, the bold one, the one whose confession I want to build my church on, hey, buddy, even you, not going to let you stand in the way just because you don't like what I'm saying. This is what's going to happen. Here's the reality. We see this several times in the New Testament. The cross, Jesus' ultimate destination. The cross is a stumbling block to the Jews, okay? Specifically Peter here. You're going to die? You're going to rise again? It's like they almost don't hear that. They just hear you're going to die. You're not going to reign on a throne here. They, they hear that, and it's just like, no, that, that's not what we expect. That's not what we want. And, and so it's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's foolishness to the Gentile, okay? And here's all that means. To a Gentile, they want to follow power, and power doesn't fail. Power doesn't allow themselves to be arrested and crucified, so to a Gentile, it's a, it's a silliness, it's foolishness to follow someone whose whole revolution, their whole momentum ends one Friday in Jerusalem. That's just foolishness to the Gentile. But the reality is, Jesus is the only way to bring eternal life to all who believe. God the Father knows that. Jesus knows the course that he must walk. And so nothing will stand in the way of that. No worldly expectations. Hey, this may be what everyone else thinks is going to happen, but I know what has to happen to save you. So nothing's going to stand in the way of that. His number one disciple's not going to stand in the way of that. And our own misunderstandings. So I, I know there's many our own misunderstandings, what we think we know about Jesus, but just a little bit off, those won't stand in the way of the truth of what Jesus came to do. So I ask you today, I ask you just a couple questions. Number one, okay, it, it, it all revolves around this. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? That is a very important question to answer. Because to Peter, he was the Messiah, the Son of God. Beautiful confession. But Jesus knew his answer, while correct, was off in his heart. His expectation was wrong. So, I think some of us, we think Jesus is some reincarnation of a story from old. That, that's at least what Herod thought. Hey, maybe he's Elijah, maybe he's Moses, maybe he's, maybe he's one of the other prophets, you know, maybe, maybe he's John the Baptist. I, I think some of us go, yeah, I mean, Jesus is probably real, but he's really no different than any of the other gods out there. He, he's just one of many, and, and that, that's awesome, and, and you know, I, I may believe a little bit of him, but I, I can I'm kind of pick and choose. Some believe he's potentially God, but he just needs to prove a little bit more so that you can believe. And I think that's where the rest of the disciples are at right now. I think, I think they're going, hey, I, I, I mean, I've seen you do some great stuff, but uh, I, I'm not quite there yet. I'm not really ready to profess that you are Lord of my life because you really haven't done anything for me yet. And, and I think many of you kind of feel that way going, 
you know, it, I, I think Jesus is probably awesome. He probably loves me and, and he may be my best ticket to heaven, but he really hasn't done anything for me. And boy, how, how, how messed up is that? When in reality, he's done everything for you. But, but then there's others, and, and I hope this is you. And if it's not, I hope today you make this decision to others. He's a servant who laid down his life as a ransom, laid down his life for a pay, to pay something that you can't pay yourself. And because he did that, because he fulfilled his mission, he didn't let anyone stand in the way. Now he sits at the right hand of God in glory. I mean, paid the ultimate price for you and for me. I, I pray that you see him as one who deserves love because he loved you first. He's deserving of love, love that is from your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the reason I hope so desperately that that's how you see Jesus or that's who you see him as, as the servant who laid down his life, the reason that that's so important is because that's the only conclusion that you can draw. That's the only belief that you can have that can bring you from death to life. Any other understanding of who Jesus is falls short. And so I hope, I pray that today you see Jesus for who he is. You accept that yes, he is the Messiah. Yes, he is the son of God. Yes, he is Lord. And you ask him to be the Lord of your life. And maybe you're going, I did that all a long time ago. I, I, think that's, I think that's awesome. And I think that counts. But I think daily we have to wake up, take a breath and go, thank you, God, for that. And, and today, will you continue to be Lord of my life? I believe that there is no other. There's no other God. There's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. It's just you. And because of you, I have life, I have hope, joy, of peace. And if you don't feel those things, then can I implore you today to look at who you see Jesus as and to change if you see him as something else, see him as lacking in some way, see him as underperforming in some way and just accept that he is who he says he is and he is all you need because he loves you and he's for you. I pray that today you will experience that in the most profound way. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for the sacrifice that he made. Thank you that he became Messiah through a way that no one else expected, but in doing so, he paid the price we could not pay for ourselves. We need him, God. So through your Holy Spirit, call upon our hearts, woo us in our affections of you and towards you, and allow us to place our faith in the one and only Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of the world. Help us to do that. Lord Jesus, we need you, we love you, it's in your name we pray, amen.